the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave all week. All week you are going to have to suffer without Dave and listen to my squeaky, high-pitched, or whatever it may be, New York-accented voice. Of course, we have with us as well Heidi, making sure that I do my job as well as possible, as low as a bar to chin that may be. Heidi's going to be uh, helping us take the breaks Uh, and intervening as I run long, inevitably. Folks, we are, before I get started with topics of the day, uh, let me remind you that I can be found on my only social media posting of at Rob Steinbuck, R-O-B-S-T-E-I-N-B-U-C-H, and that's on Twitter, as I like to call it, the Twittergram, the Twitter post, uh, Etc. Uh, so if you happen to be on Twitter, check me out there. Maybe I can surpass 11 and a half followers. Much more importantly, folks, I'm going to be talking with you this morning and all week and including, in fact, next Monday about topics of the day. And we are living in a difficult time right now. And I know that is often a common refrain, a hackneyed phrase indeed, but I think it's apt. I've been on this planet long enough to recall simpler times and times comparable to now, Uh, but those latter are rarer. And we are stuck in a confluence of significant events. The two largest, of course, are the pandemic, and we've seen some of those types of events before, and the unrest, the lawlessness that is going on across the United States to different levels at different places in the name of social justice, because it's largely not social justice. It's largely simply lawlessness You know, when someone, uh, for the sake of social justice, needs a new $150 pair of sneakers that he or she steals from a broken glass window storefront, that's not social justice. When you see folks screaming, if you can take a Gucci bag or a Rolex watch, that's reparations. That's not social justice. That's criminality. 
And of course, I have no doubt that Dave's listeners don't support that kind of behavior. So to some extent, I am, as they say, preaching to the choir or preaching to the converted. Uh, Both of those analogies will be particularly apt in just a moment as I talk about a particular topic. So hold on for it, folks. Hope you have your coffee. Hope you're looking outside. The sky is still dark, uh, as it should be, but it will start to lighten up soon. These claims of social justice, or similarly, the claims of peaceful protests, I saw on the news this weekend, quite literally, some mainstream media reporter standing in front of a burning building. Burning building. Not a burning garbage pile, small garbage pile or garbage can, as bad as that might be, mind you. Standing in front of a full building ablaze. And he says, these largely peaceful protests. Largely peaceful protests. Right? It's the, the number of analogies to demonstrate the ridiculousness of these of this phrase is remarkable. There's an old saying about how uh, when a clock strikes 13, it's, you know, something's wrong, meaning the old style grandfather clock, right? Where at every hour it would ring the number of hours it is. So one o'clock it rings once at three o'clock it rings, it it chimes three times, etc. And, of course, it's on a 12-hour cycle. It's not a military grandfather clock. I don't know if such a thing has ever even existed. And so if it rings 13 times, obviously it's broken. There's no 13 o'clock. And think about that. If you had a clock that rang 13 times, would you trust it when it rang at 6 o'clock? It could be right. It brings up the other joke about clocks, which is a broken clock is twice uh, is correct twice a day, right? If it's not even moving and it's stopped at six o'clock at six o'clock, it's right. But just by coincidence. So I bring up these analogies to say when you have a building burning in the background, you can't call that environment largely peaceful, even though not everyone who's out there protesting participated in the burning building. Yes, not everybody was violent, but the protest as an entity is not peaceful. It's that simple. There were plenty of folks during the Nazi occupation of various parts of Europe, who survived. Does that mean that the Nazis didn't engage in the horrific acts that they did? No, of course not. It just means that as horrific as the behavior was, it didn't touch every aspect of every life. That's right. There were even... There were even some Jews that survived Nazi occupation. Not many, folks, but there were a few. Does that mean that the Nazis didn't target the Jews for murder? Of course not. As we well know through his, of history, that was the case. 
So this notion of ca- calling these protests largely peaceful when you have buildings burning in the background. I saw a different video where they where the protesters were throwing Molotov cocktails, right? Gasoline in bottles with wicks on the end lit to start explosions upon impact, which they did. In fact, one of the protesters uh, caught fire uh, in some sort of very ironic, rough justice. Didn't kill him. This is not largely peaceful. Are there any peaceful protests across the, the nation? I'm sure. I'm sure there must be. But to claim that the particular, the ones in which there's a building on fire are largely peaceful, that's nonsense. The, the quantity and content of that burning building makes it not largely peaceful. When you see rioters breaking the windows of stores and looting those stores, not largely peaceful. Were there other people there who were not? Maybe. Not largely peaceful. That's how I define it. By the way, pursuant to the English language. In other words, it's not some sort of kooky definition. That's the normal use of the terminology. Not largely peaceful. I saw... Uh, one commentator say it was a good thing that Joe Biden came out and disavowed these violent protests. By the way, I agree with that. Absolutely. It is a good thing that he said. He said, well, you know, because Donald Trump is trying to pin it on him. Well, here's the thing. It took you three months, Joe, to come out and disavow this. And even in disavowing it, he says nothing about the underlying false claims about the, the neo-Marxist Black Lives Matters organization and related thuggery that's going on when you see the looting, the arson, and the assaults that are going on. So this is the problem, folks. Even when Joe Biden says the right thing. I give him full credit for saying the right thing. I don't give him full credit for saying it so late. Similarly, and I'm going to come back to this main theme in just a second, but by analogy, folks are saying, oh, well, Trump said on that tape that he thought it was even worse than what he was saying in public and therefore should have done more. Remember, I'm the one, if you've listened to Dave's show at all, If you've listened to me on Dave's show, when I've guest hosted, when I am a guest, as I routinely am on Friday mornings with Chris Corbett, a local engineer, local attorney, who hopefully will be running for state Senate, not this coming November, but two years therefrom. Uh, I've said, I'm a germaphobe. That's not a compliment, nor is it an insult. It is a description. I'm a germaphobe. So I like as much social distancing as possible. When I talk about these things, I say we need to look at the situation uh, that's going on at 
with the best information. And I look at it adding into a layer, adding in a layer of germophobia. So I've always thought we should be doing more. So would I have preferred the president to do more early on? Sure. But when the left criticizes the president for not doing enough and saying, oh, well, I thought it was even more dangerous. They were doing even less. They were criticizing him for closing down flights from China when he did. Oh, well, he's a xenophobe. He doesn't like people. We go, Nancy Pelosi said, go down to Chinatown, eat in a restaurant. Two layers of stupidity, right? Think about it. First of all, she's encouraging people to go to these places that co- in which people congregate. And I'll tell you this, I've been to Chinatown in San Francisco. I've been to San Francisco more broadly, very high rents. What happens when you have high rents, small places, small places, densely congregated customers. And at least as much in Chinatown, meaning Chinatown tends to have smaller restaurants than some of the outskirts of San Francisco. So she's encouraging people to go to the very densest places where you would transmit the disease even more so. And now she and Joe Biden and their ilk are saying, Donald Trump didn't do enough. You were arguing for even less restrictions. So if you want to say, well, I, Donald Trump didn't do enough, but I was encouraging even more bad behavior. Do it. But of course they won't, right? Because that makes them look even worse. And so I don't uh, uh, come out and criticize those who want more or those who want less restrictions because I understand <clears throat> the different perspectives. I can tell you, what my interests are. And that's why, for example, when we talk about, as we did recently, the lawsuit with Dan Sullivan, Bob Ballinger, I don't know, about 25 other legislators, I think. I think maybe the number I have is slightly, maybe 25 is a little bit larger, but I don't think dramatically so. Asking not to change the rules that the governor has regarding the pandemic. No, no. And there was a false claim made by some pure hack about that. The lawsuit is to say, um, excuse me, over here, excuse me, with the legislature. Maybe we could be involved. Maybe we could be consulted. Maybe we can be called back into session. Now, is that a crazy notion? Who objects to that notion during an emergency? That's what this is declared during an emergency, bringing the legislature back into session so we could have full participation of our government during an emergency environment. Hmm. That is not a crazy notion at all. I I agree with you, Robert. But with that thought, let's take a break. It is almost 621 in the morning. We got traffic and we got news and other commercials coming up on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning. I see some light in the sky. Morning is coming upon us, albeit slowly. Folks, as we always do, we're talking about current events. We're talking about the unrest in society today, 
those who want to deny it, those who want to claim, oh, it's peaceful protests, are lying, living in denial, trying to hold on with desperation in their limousines behind their gated communities, within their gated communities. But the reality, as we've seen, even in the mainstream media, is absolutely the opposite. One of the things that we've seen going on across the country now in this vein is that various institutions, I've seen it on Netflix, uh, almost every institution of education has put out a statement supporting these movements. Now, the content of the statement is important because some of them are okay and some of them are not so okay. Now, why are they done? I think largely when I see it on Netflix, for example, this is what we call virtue signaling, which is look at us. We're the good guys. Support us. Buy our product. There's no substance to it. And um, so I'm not interested one way or the other in those virtue signalers. We see it from higher education, education in general, and higher education components across this country significantly. And some of the statements are downright scary because they are neo-Marxist statements. They are not statements of mere support for equality. Sure, fine, no problem. They are statements of revolution. They are statements disparaging the United States, the principles of this country. And to be clear, the principles of this country are outstanding. Well, you see, Rob, the the Constitution was built on racism, was built on slavery. And there's truth in that statement in the sense that the Constitution had slavery empowered within it. Yeah, but guess what? That's the original version of the Constitution. We went through a civil war. We amended the Constitution. Slavery is prohibited, was prohibited. Equal rights were granted. So if you're talking about the old version, sure. If you're talking about the new version, by the way, you know, 150 years new. No! No! So... The claims that underlie so many of these virtue signaling statements are inherently false, but there's an even deeper problem. The claims that underlie so many of these virtue signaling statements going on across this country have their own insidious classism and racism built into it as part of their neo-Marxist philosophy. That's the problem. We talked on Thursday about some of this, about how the federal government has finally stopped funding lectures to federal employees from the critical race theory pundits because of the claims made therein, essentially, that are blaming whites for being white. 
whites are not to be blamed for being white. And on a related theme, I'd like to read you a clause from one of these many, many virtue signaling statements from higher education and then talk to you why that clause is a problem. Heidi's going to cut us off in a minute for a break because 101 FM, the answer has to aptly pay the bills, folks, and give you the news and the weather and rush, that kind of thing. But I'm going to read you this statement if we have enough time to do it. Let's um, let's pause that. Let's pause the clause. Yep. I think we're uh, we're reaching to a, a point where we have to get to uh, Salem Radio Network news. So let's do that. Robert Steinbach is filling in for the for Dave Ellswick. He is a professor with the Bowen, Bowen School of Law at UA Little Rock. Here is the news on one hundred one point one FM. The answer. Filling in for Dave on this Monday morning with the light certainly coming up in the sky now. We have been talking about current events. We've been talking about these violent protests, all claims to the contrary by the mainstream media and the leftist politicians notwithstanding. And we've been talking most recently about these virtue signaling statements being put out at all levels throughout society, industry, business, education, and within that, higher education. And I want to talk to you about one of those statements simply as an example of some of the problems that we see in all of these virtue signaling statements. The statement that I'm reading from has the following line. Think about it as I read it, and then we'll dissect it to see what the problems in that statement are. So the statement reads as follows. The the line reads as follows. Uh, I'm sorry, bear with me. Um, We are resolute and compelled to act now in fulfilling the call for justice in our nation and to listen to the voices of the African-American community, as well as leaders of other marginalized groups, including members of the Latinx, Latinx, indigenous, Asian, Arab, and LGBTQ plus communities, amongst others, as we seek to eradicate racism in all forms. So on, it, on its face, it seems actually a perfectly fine statement. Why? Let's, let's talk about what's right about that statement. And then let's talk about what's so deeply wrong about that statement, which undergirds so much of the problem that we see going on with this so-called social justice movement spanning the country through violence, through arson, through assault, through battery. The statement says, to begin with, We're resolute and compelled to act now in fulfilling the call for justice in our nation. Okay, we can dissect that a little bit now. I'm not sure why we're compelled now to act. In other words, those precipitating events, many of which are not indeed related to this issue. The shooting of, um, oh, now I forget his name. Heidi, maybe you can help me. The guy who got shot in the back seven times in his car uh, recently uh, by the police uh, and claimed to be part of this Black Lives Matter social justice movement is no such thing. 
No such thing. The police were called on this guy, Blake. The police were called on this guy because he was intruding in someone's house. He resisted arrest. He was tased and it didn't have an effect. There were three cops telling him to stop moving at gunpoint. He was already in a scuffle with them. He goes, nonetheless, completely ignores their lawful orders, goes into his car, reaches into his car. As it turns out, there is a knife in the car. I don't care, by the way, folks, because the potential for a knife or a gun is what is, justifies the use of deadly force, not the actual existence thereof. And he gets shot. And, there, and the claims by the leftists are that this was an inappropriate shoot. It was not. It was entirely justified. I even heard someone on these issues who's somewhat conservative or libertarian say, well, if the cops were better trained in how to take them down, better trained to what? To use, and, he, and by the way, this commentator brought out this point, to use a chokehold that's now illegal? Can't use that? What are they supposed to do exactly? How are they supposed to stop them? Stop someone like this guy? So that is not an example of a racial justice incident. It is an example of a bad guy resisting arrest and and creating a circumstance in which the use of deadly force was justified. Justified. What about the Brianna Taylor, if I have the name correct, incident in which this woman was tragically shot Is that a Black Lives Matter slash social justice issue? No. Why? She's an African-American woman who was incorrectly, inappropriately shot. Tragic, awful, terrible. Likely a civil claim exists. Likely a lawsuit, a proper lawsuit exists. Well, why is it not a Black Lives Matter slash social justice issue then? Because she was shot by accident. She, no one was even aiming at her. It was entirely an accident that she got shot and killed. Does that make it 100% correct? No! But does it make it a targeting of minority? No! It was an accident. If some cop takes out his gun and decides to juggle it in the air foolishly, and it hits somebody, and, and it goes off and it hits someone, should that cop be fired? Yep. Should they be subject to a civil penalty, in a lawsuit, I mean by that? Yep. Should they be subject to some sort of criminal penalty? Yeah, probably in, in that hypothetical, because it's such recklessness and recklessness that leads to a death in particular can be a criminal sanction. But is is it the intentional targeting of whoever got shot by that hypothetical, by that bullet in that hypothetical story? Well, of course, it's not an intentional targeting. I just described it exactly as the opposite. And I I created the hypothetical. So you can't tell me otherwise. Well, in the Breonna Taylor circumstance, the evidence is is overwhelming. She wasn't targeted. She was shot by accident. The cops showed up with what's called a no-knock warrant, broke in the door. They say they announced themselves. There's, it seems to be the more persuasive argument because once in, cops would announce themselves for their own safety. But regardless, it doesn't matter. 
for the story. That means it does matter that they should announce themselves, but it doesn't matter for the fact that they, they break in the boyfriend uh, uh, who's there shoots at the cops, the cops shoot back and they hit uh, Brianna Taylor uh, by accident. Tragic, absolutely tragic. And I, I'm not sure I can give you a blanket statement that when a cop shoots someone by accident, the cop should be fired. Meaning, I, I pause to simply say maybe there's some circumstance in which that tragic fact pattern doesn't result in a cop being fired, but there are not a lot of them, if any, at all. Why? Because <clears throat> cops need to be responsible for where every bullet goes. They need to know what their environment is. So I'm not giving you a 100% scenario, but I'm giving you a high percentage scenario. But to say that she was targeted, I don't know how you get there. Whoa, the cops would have never broken in the house. The cops had a search warrant signed by a judge. Was he involved in this alleged conspiracy? So uh, I don't see how you get there. So we're still going through this statement here, and we're trying to figure out, and I said to you from the beginning, overall the statement seems okay. We should support uh, calls for social justice, even though some of the events, as I just described, giving rise to these calls are not calls for social justice at all, or should not give rise to calls for social justice, in that the events were not events of a lack of social justice as evidenced through targeting of racial minorities. But I want to talk to you about the second half of this sentence, and I'm going to read it back to you again, and then highlight to you why there's a problem. It starts out, as I said, by asking us to all listen to the voices of the African-American community. And I think that's perfectly fine. Now, some might, some people might say, well, we are listening. Okay. Okay. Well, if you're listening and someone says, listen, your response is, okay, I've been doing that. So there's nothing inappropriate about saying that. I think. Let's listen to the voices from the African-American community. Let's listen to the voices from other communities. I think that's all fine. I don't have a, a, a problem, by the way, <clears throat> when people say black lives matters. Well, of course they do. And some people have responded, all lives matter. And of course they do. I mean, I don't think those statements are inconsistent. I think you can say them both. And you can choose which one you want to say at any time. Now, sometimes those on the left want to shut down others who want to say all lives matter. That's inappropriate. But there's, but there's nothing inappropriate about saying Black Lives Matter. Sure. If some folks want to say that, sure. No problem. I'm going to problem on that. So the statement says, let's listen to our, uh, the voices of our African-American community, as well as leaders of, wait for it, folk, folks, other marginalized groups, including members of the Latinx, Latinx, Indigenous, Asian, Arab, and LGBTQ plus communities. Hmm. Amongst others, it says, to be clear. But they've included certain ones 
and they've excluded others. Which one is excluded, folks? Hmm. Now, I particularly know which one is excluded because I'm a member of that group. Jews. Where are the Jews? You've listed a bunch of members of communities that you've described as marginalized group groups. What group has been more marginalized in the last hundred years? Has anybody paid attention to world history? Has anybody in this neo-Marxist group paid attention to World War II? You've described marginalized groups and you haven't included amongst them the Jews? Was that an oversight? Was that an accident? And here's why it wasn't, folks. Because there are several members of the Black Lives Matters movement who are outright anti-Semitic. It's been well documented because it's all part of this neo-Marxism. Neo-Marxism, here's the beauty I put in quotes, by the way, folks, to be clear, because I'm being sarcastic. The beauty of Nazism of of the last century, the coincidence of Nazism and communism of the last century. The beauty, in quotes, Indeed, what I mean by that is the tragedy of Nazism and communism, two directly opposing political forces in the last century, were that they both hated the Jews. How can that be? How can it be that both philosophies that claim to be in direct opposition hated the Jews? And the answer is quite simple, because while they both claim to be oppositional philosophies, they're both totalitarian philosophies. And totalitarianism has, for some reason, coincided with anti-Semitism. Every single time, totalitarianism has coincided with anti-Semitism. And so the quote beauty by that as I said I mean tragedy of the coincidence between Nazism and communism is that they fall under this category of totalitarianism of authoritarianism and totalitarianists and authoritarianists hate the Jews why because Jews historically have had a strong commitment to God and their religion And the religion of totalitarianism and authoritarianism is anti-God. It's whatever their political philosophy is. And those, and really they are cults of personality, meaning there's some individual who's raised to a godlike figure. And Jews have, throughout the history of Judaism, resisted that, often to their peril. And so now we read a statement by these so-called social justice warriors that lists a whole panoply of marginalized groups, and the group that has been the most marginalized in the last hundred years, by coincidence, is left off the list. I dare say no. I dare say no. They haven't been left off by coincidence. 
They've been left off by design. And why is it by design? Because this so-called social justice movement is part of a broader neo-Marxist movement, and neo-Marxism is anti-Semitic. That's what's going on here, folks. Neo-Marxism is anti-Semitic, like traditional Marxism is anti-Semitic. Let's pause right there, Robert. Uh, We will be right back. Uh, We have uh, some traffic to get to. You are listening to The Dave Ellswick Show. UA Little Rock law professor Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave all this week and next Monday. This is 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is The Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck, filling in for Dave all week and next Monday, in fact. So strap in, because it's going to be a big ride, folks. If you're on the Twitter post, the Twittergram, uh, add me to your list, so to speak. I am at Rob Steinbuck, R-O-B-S-T-E-I-N-B-U-C-H. And you can be one of my 14 listeners. Folks, we're talking about this whole social justice movement. And I want to expand briefly in the five or so minutes that we have remaining in this portion before we take our next break to show you the contrast. We see these um, virtue signaling statements coming out across the country at various levels, at institutions, at higher education, at, at lower education, meaning K through 12. But what we haven't talked about and what is not covered as well is that in these institutions, we also see anti-police bias preceding these events that have created the most recent tumult. And we heard about first on the Dave Ellswick show. I remember it. I may have been guest hosting. I certainly was on the show at the time in which a Little Rock police officer called in and was told it told us that he was told by an Arkansas higher education institution he wasn't allowed to show up in the school in uniform wearing his gun. Now, first, folks, I pay good money to have a uniform cop follow me around everywhere. Private security, essentially, with the imprimatur of the government, no less. But he was told he couldn't carry his gun in uniform. In school. And by the way, you may or may not know, a cop is not, cannot wear his uniform and not wear his gun, meaning he is required to have them all together. And he was coming directly from work to go to school, seeking to expand his education. Don't, can't wear a gun. And so I called a state legislator. And the legislator was incensed by it, absolutely incensed by it. And that state legislator, incidentally, is the great Senator Bob Ballinger. And he said, well, we've got to do something about this, and we have to do something about it ASAP. And so we put together a bill, and I think quite literally, because it happened to be during session, we passed the bill within two weeks. Boom. Now, to be clear, the law already permitted police officers to be in uniform on duty or off duty and wear their gun. The law already permitted that. But remember, the state school 
claimed otherwise. So what's the resolution when you have some state entity or city entity claiming that someone can't do something that he or she is entitled to do? Well, you got to go to court. You got to pay a lawyer. It takes some time. Or you can pass another law that says we really, really mean it. Now, in reality, what you do is you just pass a law and you write out exactly the opposite of whatever that bureaucrat told you. The bureaucrat says a cop is not allowed to wear his gun off duty in uniform in a higher education institution. You write a law that says a cop is allowed to wear a gun in uniform in a state entity of higher education. That's how you do it. And you put in some in the legislative history. By the way, this was already legal, but we're just making it perfectly clear. Because then if the state entity continues to fight, there are all sorts of penalties likely to come as a consequence. And that's what we did. And that's what we did. And that cop was then allowed to come back to school. When we talk about treating people fairly and treating people equally, we talk about all people. We talk about our law enforcement community that is overwhelmingly good and supportive and helpful, contrary to the claims that we see propagated as part of this so-called social justice movement. Because so much of the claims of the social justice justice movement, the so-called social justice movement, are that cops are inherently evil, they're inherently racist, they're inherently bad. And let's expand on that, Robert, as we get into the 7 o'clock hour. We are almost out of time. Thank you for listening to The Dave Ellswick Show. UA Literoc Law Professor Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick all this week and next Monday since Dave is on vacation. We'll be right back after news, traffic, and weather on The Dave Ellswick Show. And I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning. It is indeed bright out in the morning when I started the show. As you know, it was dark. So I hope you're up and awake and getting your day well started. We are continuing to talk about topics of the day. And I want to read to you from an article uh, slash interview from the New York Times. Yes, folks. I dare say I still read the New York Times, uh, but I do so secondarily. It is no longer my primary read. It can't be because it is no longer, clearly, it is no longer a, an unbiased source. By way of example, the top headline on the New York Times app 
as we speak, says in visiting California, Trump confronts a scientific reality he denies. Think about that for a moment. That's a political statement embedded in the top article title listed on the New York Times. He confronts a political, excuse me, a scientific reality he denies. First of all, he's visiting about the wildfires started by an individual. They weren't started by this uh, climate change issue. So now the left has to go on and say, yes, but they're made worse because the forests are dried, etc. And what does his visiting this wildfire have to do with his views on the underlying issue of climate change. The left tries to embed in every activity of the president and anybody else they disagree with uh, their own political agenda. So getting back to the article slash interview I want to read to you and talk with you about, it's titled, Why Are Men still explaining things to women. Think about that for a moment. We haven't even gotten into the content yet. And already you can see an attack on half the population. Why are men still explaining things to women? How dare men explain things to women? Replace men with any other group except white, by the way, then you'd be crucified. You'd be crucified. And I don't mean any disrespect to my many, many Christian friends, by the way. Think about that. How can you say that? You are now indicting half the population based on their biology. Here's the other thing. What am I doing right now? And what do I do as a profession? I explain things to people including, I dare say, women. Why am I explaining things to men and women? Because that's what I get paid to do, and that's what I volunteer to do, meaning I get paid to do it. As you know, I'm a professor at UA Little Rock Bone School of Law. All of my views expressed here are mine and mine alone and not necessarily those of the Bowen School of Law or the UA system in general. Why do I explain things to men and women? Because I get paid to do it in one context, and I do it here for free. Yet the title of the article is, Why are men still explaining things to women? Think about the embedded neo-Marxism in that. Right? We talked about how Marxism views everything through a lens of economics, of class. Neo-Marxism looks at everything through a lens of race. Now, sex slash gender is not a race, but they usually get coupled together, meaning race and gender get coupled together for the neo-Marxists. So here, they're looking at everything through a lens of sex. And I don't mean sexuality. I mean sex, male, slash female. Isn't that remarkable? 
Why are men still explaining things to women? I'll give you the answer. Because men explain things to women, and women explain things to men, and men explain things to men, and women explain things to women. All of the above. Because people explain things to other people, sometimes incorrectly, in fact. Hopefully more times correctly. When I do it in class, I dare say I'm confident that, for the most part, I do it correctly. I will also concede happily, because I know all humans are flawed, that I'm sure I make mistakes. Hopefully I correct them. But why am I explaining things to men and women? Because that's what I get paid to do. I recall once I had sent an email to a local pundit here whose name I won't mention just because I try to keep our conversations private uh, when they are likely intended to be such, but with no legal requirement, just out of sort of friendliness. And I told this local pundit, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sorry, hold on, folks. <coughs> These are one of the problems of live radio, right? I told this local pundit that he was wrong on something, as he often is. Needless to say, he's a bit of a leftist pundit. And he said to me, and he's a nice guy, he said to me, well, you know, who do you think you are lecturing to me, essentially? I don't recall exactly what the words were, but something to that effect. And I said, do you know what I do for a living? I lecture for a living. And he this was an email. He kind of responded, recognizing the humor of my statement and the aptness of my lecturing, even if he disagreed with the underlying comment. So why are men still explaining things to women? Because men explain things to women the same way women explain things to men, the same way men explain things to men and women explain things to women. How's that? How's that? We haven't even gotten into the content of the article already, and I've already... De demonstrated to you through a mathematical proof, essentially, that the premise of the title is false. That's why I no longer, as I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, rely on the New York Times as my primary source of news. Because it's no longer news. That's not news, folks. That's commentary. That's not news. So I read commentary, and I read leftist commentary as, as well as conservative commentary. You got to know what the other folks are saying, folks, in order to be able to respond to them actively. Some of the things that people on the left say are intelligent. Historically, remember, the free speech movement was a movement started by the left, not by conservatives. Conservatives don't get to take credit for that. Sorry. That's history. That's history, folks. Sorry. The, the left gets the historical credit for the free speech movement. Here's the problem. They've abandoned it. And the right, the conservatives, have taken up the mantle. Good for them, by the way. Good for them. So while the left gets credit historically for the free speech movement, they don't get credit for continuing it. They have entirely abandoned the free speech movement. Think about how tragic that is, by the way. To have started a movement that was, was and remains a movement in the history of these great United States that has gone down with virtually no 
criticism, meaning there was criticism at the time, but when looked back through the lens of history, demonstrated to be just and proper, and then abandoned by the left. It's one thing to abandon a movement if it turns out, oh, well, that wasn't a good idea after all. But you have a movement that is entirely successful, and the left abandons it. It's just tragic. But it gave an opportunity to the conservatives to not only join the movement, but now take credit for its continuation. I'm fine by that. Fine with that. Because it's true. You want to give it back to me or to me, so to speak. I'll take it. I'll take it. Folks, this is the problem with, with the left as a general matter, right? They've abandoned their principles for outcomes. If you follow the analysis, as we will in this article, I haven't gotten off topic, even though I do that from time to time. If we, we will go through this article point by point, and you will see how the left has abandoned their principles of equality simply for their desired outcomes. In other words, for the left, the ends do justify the means. Listen, and this is an analogy, folks, to be clear. You know, if a few people get swept up in um, improper, in being treated improperly so that we bring about our version of social justice, so be it. That's not social justice. That's social injustice. The left used to be the advocates of civil liberties. Even one person wrongly convicted was a tragedy. I've always agreed with that sentiment. I have always agreed with that sentiment. And that sentiment has been in somewhat conflict with some conservatives historically, not in present day, but historically. I remember when I worked in the U.S. Senate and we were working to modify the rules that had the laws that created a significant disparity in punishment between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. There is an argument for some disparity whether or not you buy that argument, but there's an argument for some disparity. But there was never an argument for the level of disparity. And I spoke with one fellow uh, who uh, was essentially arguing against it. And I said, well, that's it's just an unjust system, you know, and you need to have a way, you need to clean this up, basically. And his argument in response was essentially, well, we just need to have law and order. Not at the expense of individuals' civil liberties. Sorry, I disagree with that. Uh, and so I have always been on the side of free speech. I have always been on the side of civil liberties. And conservatives now own those issues. That's the irony here. Not because they shouldn't own them. They should. That is what is true about the core of conservative philosophy, but because politically they were not the ones to have taken the mantle initially, but it was passed to them. Thank you very much. I'll take it. Thank you. No problem. I'll put it in my pocket and I'll take all the credit you want to give for it because that's the tragedy. Heidi, it seems to me that we're about that time. You know, I'm not great at keeping... I would uh, say 
I would say so. Yeah, yeah. Let's you're, do it. You're right on the money. Let's do it, Robert. Uh, Robert Steinbuck, he is a law professor at the Bowen School of Law for UA Little Rock. His opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Bowen School of Law. We have news and we have traffic coming up on the Dave Ellswick Show. This I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning and all week and next Monday. So please bear with me as I do a mediocre comparison to the great Dave Ellswick. We are talking today uh, about, as we always do, by the way, perhaps, the issues of the day. We are going through an article slash interview in the New York Times entitled, Why Are Men Still Explaining Things to Women? And as I said in the last segment, could you imagine replacing man with anything? Woman, minority, any other group except white. As an aside, you hear on the news when people raise concerns about this neo-Marxist, racist, slash genderist or sexist philosophies that are being propagated by the left, that when criticism is presented, well, you see, that's white grievance or male grievance or white male grievance. Well, to the extent that it is a criticism of neo-Marxism being presented by someone who happens to be a male, although I've heard them from women, who happens to be white, although I've heard them from non-whites, they are grievances from those people. It doesn't make it a white grievance, you racist. It doesn't make it a male grievance, you sexist. It makes it a grievance or a complaint. By the way, grievance is an inherently loaded term in and of itself. Grievance sounds like, oh, you're a complainer. You've got a grievance. No, it is a critique. It is a critique by someone whose gender we shouldn't care about, whose race we shouldn't care about, unless you're a sexist or a racist. So don't tell me that my race, my sex, my gender, my whatever bears on the legitimacy of my intellectual debate. It does not. And that is why I said in the last segment that the left has abandoned their principles. They used to be about equality, equality for all sexes. Now they're not because they talk about mansplaining. So, well, men don't have equality. They used to be about equality for all races, but they talk about this so-called white grievance. So whites are not part of all of the protected races, apparently. That's why the left has abandoned their principles. And as I said, for them, the ends justify the means. And in this neo-Marxist philosophy, the ends are about their purported goals for non-men, for women, that is. For non-whites, for everybody who's other than white. So they will throw men and whites away. They will discard them. That's not justice. That's not civil liberties. That's ends justifying the means. That's neo-Marxism. And the left has adopted the philosophy of neo-Marxism. That really can't be disputed. They might dispute it. 
because they don't want to be called communists or Marxists. Communism, by the way, was the application of Marxist philosophy. So they are inherently related, but marginally different. Okay. You don't want to call it communism? Then you better call it Marxism, because it's one of the two. I can tell you that right now. Getting back to the New York Times piece. I'm reading from the Times now. It says, it's common, it's cringeworthy, it's been well-documented, some might argue, since at least the 17th century. It goes on and on. Famous men do it. Uncles do it. Politicians, colleagues, bad dates, bureaucrats, and neighbors do it. Yes, we're talking about mansplaining. We're talking about mansplaining. Apparently, women don't explain anything. Only men do. Apparently, women don't explain anything in a pedantic fashion. Only men do. The apt articulation, says the article, of this phenomenon began with Rebecca Solnit's 2008 essay, quote, Men Explain Things to Me, end quote, which describes a conversation with a man at a party whose, quote, eyes were fixed on the fuzzy far horizon of his own authority, end quote. After he discovers that Ms. Solnit's latest book was about a British photographer, Edward Mybridge, he cuts her off to pontificate relentlessly on a, quote, very important, end quote, Mybridge book he thinks she should read. Turns out it was her book and he hadn't read it. So let's start by talking about that. Well, let's pause right there because Rush Limbaugh has to uh, give his remarks. So let's get to that. This is 101.1 FM, The Answer, The Dave Ellswick Show. This is Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Stomach filling in for Dave all week and next Monday, in fact. Hope your morning is going well. We are talking about a New York Times article slash interview entitled, Why Are Men Still Explaining Things to Women? And we have been discussing how no other combination of descriptors would be permissible in the title other than men or white because those are the only two racial or sex-based descriptors in which you can still discriminate against people. I'm not sure that sentence was syntax. The syntax of that sentence was perfect, but close enough, folks. I'm presenting you critique thereof. So the article goes on. Mansplaining may be recently named. Think about that. I'm going to pause. Mansplaining. Do you think you could say woman-splaining? Do you think that would be permissible? I'm going to finish this paragraph from the article and then expand upon that very point. Mansplaining may be recently named, but it's most likely a phenomenon as old as time. Inherent in patriarchy is men's entitlement to all valuable human goods, things like love, care, adoration, sex, power, and knowledge. When it comes to knowledge, especially of a prestigious sort, The idea that men have a prior claim to it is as venerable as the patriarchy itself, right? So it builds in, this is me talking now, it builds in its own assumption, this article does. Back to the article. Sometimes it's connected to the idea that women are incapable of being authority figures in, quote, politics, end quote. I think that uh, that's the book by Aristotle you'll see in a moment. For example, Aristotle wrote, well, he writes something basically uh, providing evidence to that. Really? We're going back 2,000 years to Aristotle to claim that currently there's a patriarchy and that mansplaining is a phenomenon that is pervasive. Here's the thing, folks. 
I have no doubt there are some men that explain things in a pedantic and authority fashion to, amongst others, women that is inappropriate. I have no doubt that happens. I have no doubt that some women do it to men, that phenomenon. I will even concede a further point. It may be the case. I don't know whether it is or not, but it may be the case that as a population, men do it more so than women. Think about that for a moment, folks. We are now willing to say that a given sex or gender does something more than another, than the other given sex or gender. Based on some linkage, be it biological or cultural, or both, for men over women. I'm willing to say that is a possibility. But once you concede that that's a possibility, you better be ready. Strap in, folks! You better be ready for the alternative. That is, are we permitted to say that women have character traits as a group, not everyone, because that's what we're saying about men, different than men. Are we allowed to say that? Let's pick two classical ones that have been used as stereotypes, one positive, one maybe not positive. One positive one is women are considered by some to be more empathetic to be more feeling of other people's emotions overall, on average, than men. Are we allowed to say that? We better be allowed to say that if we are allowed to say that, on average, men commit mansplaining more than women. And the negative one is sort of the related notion of women are more, quote, emotional, on average, and uh, quote, emotional, end quote, on average, than men. I don't know if either one of those are true, but are we allowed to put that out as an hypothesis? An, an hypothesis being put out about men in this New York Times article. It is a claim of truth. Men do mansplaining. Well, do women do empathizing? Even though not all of them do it for women, the same way not all of them do it for mansplaining? Are we allowed to say that? If not, then you've bought into neo-Marxism, where we're only allowed to make claims about certain groups as a group, but not other groups. If you are allowed to make those claims, even as a question, meaning I don't know the answer to either one. I don't know if men explain, I put that in quotes, things more to other men or women than women do the other way around. But I'm open to investigating the phenomenon any more than I know that women are more empathetic on average than men are. But I'm open to investigating that. Those are empirical questions, folks. We can survey. I don't mean use a survey, we can evaluate. You can use a survey, but I don't mean that exclusively. We can evaluate empirically whether those propositions are true. And if those tr propositions are true, then we can make these broad sociological claims. 
And those sociological claims can be rooted in biology, theoretically, in culture and environment, theoretically, or any combination thereof. So I'm not willing to reject any of those claims. The left may be surprised to hear me say, by the way. But I am not willing to accept the possibility of one claim without recognizing the possibility of the other. And neo-Marxists won't allow you to say that. Neo-Marxists won't allow you to think that. That's why, by the way, we had a bill in the last legislative session, and we're going to have one in the forthcoming legislative session, that says when you're at home, in your footsie pajamas, on your Facebook, on your Twittergram, etc., and you're a government employee and you want to write something on your private time, the government can't interfere with it. You might say, well, they can't interfere now. Well, that's the First Amendment. Wrong! Not wrong because that's what the First Amendment should be interpreted as saying, but wrong that's as to what the courts have told us the First Amendment means. I think they're wrong, but it doesn't matter if I think they're wrong. This is how they're interpreting the First Amendment. So when the First Amendment falls shy of its promise, we can enact a law that enhances it. Because to make something go above the floor that is the First Amendment, all you need is a statute. You don't need an amendment. You want to create more protections for Americans? You can do that just by enacting a law. And the legislature will have a bill before this coming session to do exactly that. If you're for freedom, if you're for freedom of speech, if you're for conservative values, you'll vote for that bill. Some conservatives were not supportive of the bill last session. I hope they will be supportive this session. And I'm going to call them out if they're not. Because what we don't need is statist uh, um, conservatives, rather. Defending what the state does just because the state does it. Let me let you in a little secret, folks. Much of the state, and by that, in this context, I mean both the state of Arkansas, but by state, we also mean any form of government, state, federal, local. Much of the state are a bunch of unelected leftist bureaucrats who have been embedded. Think about the history of Arkansas. Up until fairly recently, we've been a democratic state. So when bureaucrats embed themselves in bureaucracies, they don't turn over with administrations. And they don't change their views just because the top dog is a conservative. No. So still, to this day in Arkansas, the bureaucrats, the embedded bureaucrats, are largely leftists. Just keep that in mind when you're defending the actions of the bureaucracy. You're defending the actions of leftists, not of conservatives. So we have this notion of mansplaining, and the left goes around using this term that embeds in it a whole class of people. In fact, half of society, right? Roughly half, almost exactly, right, just to be clear, just slightly less than half of society is male. And we target all males by using the term mansplaining. And while one could argue about the use of that term, the legitimacy thereof, that is, you can't argue it if you're not willing to use similar terms about other genders, sexes, or, under, or in other contexts, different races, or any different populations. Could we talk about 
the potential greater empathy of women as women emotion, women emoting? I don't think so. And I don't even know if it's a phenomenon or not, but we certainly have heard about the possibility of that phenomenon in existing. And there's no greater evidence to support the claim of mansplaining than there is of women emoting. But can you say women emoting? Nope. Nope, I don't think so. I don't think in any sort of, I'm saying it here, don't get me wrong, but can you posit that as a term of art to describe a phenomenon in society today and not be attacked by the left? I don't think so. But the left has no problem with the term mansplaining. Did we know they have no problem? It shows up on their mainstream media pages perfectly. I'm reading from the New York Times, the mouthpiece of the left. That there's no doubt about. All right, right, Robert, let's take a break. Um, We got some traffic and some other commercials. We got to pay the bills. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick. Robert Steinbach is a law professor with the Bowen School of Law. His opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Bowen School of Law. We'll be right back with more on The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Simon filling in for Dave. Folks, the morning show is coming to an end. It is 7.53. The show will be over at 8 a.m. Tune in this evening for an additional hour of the Dave Ellswick Show that I will be hosting at 6 p.m. Again, 6 p.m., the Dave Ellswick Show will continue tonight as it always does, uh, and I will be hosting all this week as well as next Monday. And thank goodness Dave will be back uh, come next Tuesday. And I am already sure that I will be happy to turn over the mantle as having done only part of one day's show. I'm already exhausted. We're going to finish up this segment today, continuing to talk about this New York Times article, the hypocrisy of the left and the the neo-Marxist philosophy thereof, wherein they are they believe, entitled to use terms like mansplaining, where they embed in the notion a whole group, a whole population. But should you have chosen virtually any other group to put in a title like that, you would be criticized by the left. And then the response by the left is, well, you'll say that's male grievance, or that's White grievance, or you see that's white male grievance. I don't know why it's not male white grievance, but whatever. The point is that the left wants to use race as a dividing factor and wants to use sex as a dividing factor. And to the extent that we can describe, observe, discuss even the possibility of distinctions amongst uh, or between the sexes amongst different races, either we can do it between both sexes or amongst all the races. Not selectively following the neo-Marxist divisive philosophy of putting certain groups ahead of other groups. I will quote, as I've done before, the famous claim, the famous assertion by Chief Justice Roberts to say the best way to stop discrimination is by stopping to discriminate. 
And so you can't have partial discrimination. <clears throat> you can't have discrimination against certain groups because it fit, fits the neo-Marxist philosophy of today's left, but not against other groups. Either you have it, at least as a concept, or you don't have it. And of course, I don't want to have it. So the result is you should have no discrimination against any group. And the neo-Marxists' behavior and articulation demonstrate that at their core, they don't believe in that. That's the tragedy of the ends justify the means philosophy of the neo-Marxists. And the neo-Marxists are populating the left in America today. And so while Joe Biden, and I think we're going to finish up with this notion uh, today, <clears throat> when Joe Biden comes out three months after the rioting happened, after the looting happened, after the thuggery happened and continued, three months after, and he comes out and says, oh, by the way, meaning, what? what? What was that, Joe? Huh? Pay attention, Joe, right here, right here. Follow the bouncing ball. When he goes, oh, well, what I meant to say was, I'm against all of the rioting and, and dangerous behavior. Okay, good. Good. Better late than never. Of course, Joe doesn't know that he's late because, you know, telling time is, is challenging for him. Better late than never. But what happened in the last three months? How come there was no commentary there? And then if you look at the proposals that he's supporting, and more importantly, perhaps the people that he is surrounding himself with, it's clear that he's still buying into this neo-Marxist philosophy. And by buying in, I'm not sure he adopts it or not, frankly. What is clear <clears throat> to me is that Joe Biden is being, uh, is largely a puppet of those surrounding him. He's being fed words on a teleprompter at an allegedly impromptu interview. So to say that he is being controlled by others, I think is really fairly transparent at this point. So the new left is the Democratic Party right now. Joe Biden is the face of the new left to perhaps give it a more palatable view to say, oh, we're really not as extreme as what you're seeing on television. When you <clears throat> see reporters standing in front of burning buildings, literally telling you, no riots here. Largely peaceful protests here. Wait, what? Wait, what? As the buildings are burning behind you? You can't make this up. You, they are literally standing in the face of riots. Largely peaceful protests. Don't oh, let right, your lying Robert. eyes tell you what you see, as the old saying goes. Robert, we will finish this up in the 6 p.m. hour. You are listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. Don't go anywhere. Financial Issues Live is up next. And tonight at from 6 to 7 p.m., the Dave Ellswick Show will be back with Robert Steinbach. You are listening to 101.1 FM, The Answer.
Francesco. Good evening. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave all week long and next Monday. Please tune in if you have a moment throughout the week to hear me share my thoughts. And we look forward to Dave returning from his well-deserved vacation down in Florida. Folks, as we always do, we talk about topics of the day. I tend to have a slight focus more so, but not entirely, needless to say, on education and higher education, because as you know, I am a professor here in Arkansas at the UA Little Rock Bowen School of Law. My views are my views alone and not necessarily of the Bowen School of Law, nor of the University of Arkansas Little Rock or University of Arkansas system. By the way, that's as it should be, meaning... There may be people that agree with me, and there may be people that disagree with me. I don't particularly know what it means to say my views aren't those of the school, because I don't think a school has views. So why do I point this out? Point this out, because from time to time across the country, I don't know if my school has ever done this, frankly. From time to time across the country, you see deans of schools putting out statements. The school believe, The school believes... School, what does a school believe? The school's a building. Well, you know, Robert, school's not a building. It's made up of the people in it. Okay, well, I'm one of the people in it. You're telling me what I believe? Well, no, you're not. You see, your beliefs, they don't matter so much. And I'm not only talking about myself, I'm talking about anybody at any school who's in a minority position in terms of their viewpoints. So what do you mean the school believes? Like, America believes. Does America as a nation believe one idea? No, we have over 350 million people in this country. What does it mean the country believes? Some people believe, but you see deans across this country put out statements. We denounced a statement of such and such. We? Who's we, Kimasabi? The school believes. I have never seen a statement put out by a university, by a law school, that says we believe that has been a conservative statement. Isn't that interesting? But it goes to show you that these institutions have been mouthpieces of the left. And sure enough, by no surprise, I've gotten another example for you in the media. So as you may recall, we talked about last Thursday on the Dave Ellswick show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, this statement from the director of the Office of Management and Budget instructing all executive branch agencies to stop funding lecturers to come in and educate, I put that in quotes, government employees on critical race theory. You want to learn about critical race theory, you go do it on your own time and spend your own money because some of the claims of critical race theory are patently false and the government should not be espousing those views and indoctrinating its employees on a neo-Marxist political agenda. You want to learn about neo-Marxism? Do it on your own time. You're perfectly free. In fact, I will encourage Uh, or what's the word I'm looking for? It's not encouraged. I will defend, rather, the right 
of those government employees to read neo-Marxist philosophy on their own time. Why? Not because I agree with it, but because that was exactly part of what the Red Scare was during the 50s. Are you a Marxist? You can't work. Wait, what? What I believe in on my private time is my business. Thank you very much. Rob, why are you defending people's ability to engage in neo-Marxist philosophy when you know it's wrong? Why? Because defending that defends my ability to believe in what I know to be right from mid-level unelected leftist bureaucrats who would try to push me out of government if they were empowered to do so. That's why. Well, Rob, uh, uh, I'm a mid-level leftist bureaucrat, and I don't like your views on religion. You like religion. Yeah, I do. Well, I don't like that. You shouldn't. We don't need religious people here. Oh, okay. Well, Rob, I'm a mid-level leftist bureaucrat, and I don't like your views on politics. You're a conservative. Yeah, I am a conservative. That's right. Well, we don't like your views. See, we falsely call your views, uh, your conservative views, we call that racist. So we don't like you. We want you out. Yeah. Well, I'd like to be defended. Uh, and have the defense of the First Amendment on my side and of legislation to enhance the limited view provided of the First Amendment by the Supreme Court, even amongst the conservatives who misinterpret it, who don't give enough force to what the First Amendment actually said. So be it, meaning I don't endorse it, but that's why we will enhance the free speech protections of the First Amendment through legislation. That was offered in the last legislative session here in Arkansas and will be offered this legislative session and hopefully we'll pass it this time. And we're going to call out those folks who are against it, conservative and liberal alike, because those people that oppose that legislation, they're not conservative, not truly so at least. They're statists. They are empowering the state to infringe on your belief system. That's not a conservative viewpoint. They may have other conservative views, But that is not a conservative viewpoint. So after the director of the Office of Management and Budget told all executive branch agencies that the federal government will no longer fund the indoctrination sessions being provided by critical race theorists, statement by all of the deans of the University of California system law schools came out defending critical race theory. So let's talk about that. So they write, first of all, in their statement of the deans of the five University of California law schools, we write with one voice to defend critical race theory and to speak against the attacks upon it by the president and the office of management and budget. The faculties of the UC law schools include many of the leading scholars in critical race theory, and our law schools engage in a good deal of important scholarship, teaching, and policy work about how race and racial oppression shape law and society. We are enormously proud of our critical race theory colleagues and the important work they do, and we're deeply distressed to see the federal government attack this important intellectual tradition, caricature it in an unjustified and divisive manner and ban federal federal employees from learning about it through trainings. By the way, government didn't ban employees from learning about it. The government didn't ban employees from learning about it in some form of training. The government banned 
the government from spending your taxpayer dollars for these employees to learn about it. Go spend your own darn money on it if you're interested in it. Don't spend my money on it. I'm not interested in indoctrinating government employees in neo-Marxist uh, race-based theories. I'm not interested in paying for that. But they can learn about it all they want on their own time, and they can engage in whatever training or reading they want to on their own time. That's the point here. Not that it can't be taught, not that it can't be learned. I'm going to surprise you, perhaps, in saying I have no problem that these law schools or others have classes on these theories. That's all right. There are classes on Marxism. Now, I suspect that at least some of the classes on Marxism are critical of Marxism, while I doubt that many of the classes on critical race theory are actually critical of critical race theory. But regardless, I think it's okay to have classes on the topic. If you also offer classes that support conservative philosophies as well, I think there are mixed results on the latter. So the, the um, letter, rather, uh, goes on uh, to say the OMB memorandum equates critical race theory to two inaccurate and wildly oversimplified tenets. Think about that, ter- that terminology, because we're going to come back to it. Two inaccurate and wildly oversimplified Tenants. One, that the United States is an inherently racist or evil country. And two, that white people are inherently racist or evil. The letter continues, this characterization reduces a sophisticated dynamic field interdisciplinary and global in scope to two simplistic absurdities. In fact, the central principle of critical race theory is that there is nothing inherent about race. Rather, says this letter, critical race theory invites us to confront with unflinching honesty how race has operated in our history and our present, and to recognize deep and ongoing operation of structural racism through which racial inequality is reproduced within our economic, political, and educational systems, even without individual, individual racist intent. Here's what is striking to me about this. The authors of this, two things. The authors of this letter say that the OMB memo is inaccurate, no oversimplified. Uh, It is unsophisticated. It is uh, simplistic. uh, uh, And they are two simplistic absurdities. Now, simplistic absurdities may capture this notion, but here's what I'm at least troubled by. It doesn't seem to me that they have clearly said that the claims that CRT embodies, amongst other things, anti-American propaganda uh, because uh, CRT embodies or or makes the claim that the U.S. is inherently racist or evil and evil or that white people are the same. It's an open question to me whether these authors are rejecting those claims of CRT entirely. Now, that last phrase might. I'm having a conversation with you. They say simplistic absurdities. An absurdity may be a rejection, but none of the other language was a rejection. So I don't know. I, po- I pose to you the question. Have these authors, in the language that I've read to you, said that CRT doesn't say these things? 
if they're telling us that CRT does not say that the U.S. is inherently racist or evil or that whites are inherently racist or evil, then okay, good, because the U.S. is not inherently racist or evil and whites are not inherently racist or evil. I'd like to see them say that. They don't say the U.S. is not inherently racist or evil, and they don't say whites are not inherently racist or evil. So I think they have used language by design, I can't say for sure, that muddies the answer to my question. I would have preferred them to say, CRT, that is critical race theory, does not say that the U.S. is inherently racist or evil. I don't know whether CRT says that or not. But if they tell me it doesn't, I'll give some great weight to them. CRT most certainly is focused on race. So, the Sorry for pausing. I was looking through the article. They go on to say the intellectual value of critical race theory is something we experience every day through the brilliance of the numerous CRT scholars. The work of these scholars has shaped legislation, etc. Indeed, much of their work is precisely that what we would hope that federal employees would receive training about. No, no. If employees learned about the theory of intersectionality, it might help them understand why black women face a larger wage gap than either white women or black men and help motivate federal federal programs that try to address the disparities they face. So you see right there, their political agenda embedded in their theories that they want to train government employees in. They're already training lawyers in it, right? Because they're at law schools. Um, we see, they go on to say, every day the ways our students benefit from learning and teaching of critical race theory is part of their education. Many of our students go on to public service. We are proud of the diversity within our communities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Let's pause right there, Robert. We need to take a break. Um, We will have um, more discussions like this coming up on the Dave Ellswick Show in the 6 p.m. hour on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Ellswick Show. You are back with me, Robert Steinbeck, filling in for Dave all week, plus next Monday. We're talking about this letter from the deans of the University of California law schools, meaning the public, the state public law schools in California. There are a number of other law schools in California. Some of them really, uh, I would call, uh, not reputable because they are selling a service uh, to people that they shouldn't be selling. But that's an aside. This letter is in defense of critical race theory. Here's the critical line, no pun intended, by the way, in the letter. And then we will focus finally on the authors for a moment before we move on. The letter says when federal employees learn about the dangers of and pervasiveness of implicit bias, it can spur improved processes and fairer decisions about who gets a job or receives a federal contract. Think about that for a moment, folks. First of all, the claim that implicit bias is pervasive in society is not only false, it's downright false. It is dangerous. So the claim is, oh, you see, there's all this racism going on, but we don't even know what's going on because we don't know what we're doing. We're so dumb. 
we're so indoctrinated, we're so pre-programmed, we don't even know that we're a bunch of racists. So don't claim that you're not a racist because the claim that you're not a racist only reinforces the claim, according to the left, those who buy into CRT, that you're even more racist because you deny the reality because you can't see it. Isn't that a wonderful, self-fulfilling delusion? Implicit bias is not pervasive throughout the society. That's a false claim. And they have now admitted that that is an inherent claim in critical race theory that they want taught to government uh, employees. And why do they want it? Because the next sentence, the next clause, same sentence tells you, because it can improve processes about decisions, to make fairer decisions about who gets a job or receives a federal contract about who gets a job or receives a federal contract. I'm not repeating myself, folks, and meaning this is not a stutter. I'm going to say it one more time, about who gets a job or receives a federal contract. In other words, if you start to adopt the false claim about pervasive implicit bias, you can then start redistributing, did I say that with the right accent, uh, emphasis, redistribu- redistributing, Jobs and federal contracts, federal benefits. It's about handouts, folks. It's about giving handouts to the preferred chosen groups of the left based on neo-Marxist race-based philosophy. That's what critical race theory is all about. You need to give the benefits of a job, or other federal contracts to the people that we've decided deserve it based on their race. Because we're talking about implicit racial bias. Because these groups are discriminated against implicitly, notwithstanding the actual intentions of the hardworking government employees. So we'll fix it. We'll fix it. Although I'm not sure how we fix it if the folks are implicitly biased and can't know they're biased, how do you fix it? But, by the way, folks, I quite literally went on Harvard, uh, I, think, I don't know if it's a law school, no, I think it's the undergrad or the university in general. They have on their website, take a look, run a Google search, they have implicit bias tests. You can take a test to see whether you're implicitly biased, and they break it down by groups. And you can see whether you're biased by taking one of the tests. They're supposedly foolproof tests. I mean, you can't cheat the test. If you could cheat the test, then it wouldn't be a test. It would be nonsense, right? I took the test twice to see whether I was implicitly biased regarding blacks in particular, because it's broken down by blacks. By all of by uh, male, you know, versus female, black versus white, all different groups. There's at least a dozen, I think, tests out there on the Harvard University website to test whether you're implicitly biased. So I took the test to see whether I was implicitly biased regarding blacks. I say regarding quite tellingly because twice the test said I was implicitly biased in favor, in favor of African-Americans. Let's, let's say that again. I took the implicit bias test. It says I, it was just slight. It wasn't largely. But according to the test, I favor African-Americans. 
What do you think about that? So they're getting a benefit from me, according to their own leftist devised test. I didn't cheat the test. I don't know how to cheat the test. And I don't think the test test is supposed to be uncheatable. That's the whole point of the test. Otherwise, it wouldn't show you anything because people would cheat the test. So according to the leftist test on the Harvard University website, I am slightly in favor of African-Americans. So the next time some leftist wants to accuse me as they knee-jerk as their knee-jerk reaction. All right, Robert, we got to take our break. News is next on the Dave Ellswick Show in the 6 p.m. hour. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. We are in the last half hour of this 6 o'clock hour on 101.1 FM, The Answer, talking about topics of the day, as we always do. We're talking about this position by the deans of the UC, the University of California law schools, and how they have adopted this notion of implicit bias that they claim is pervasive throughout society and therefore call on critical race theory that tells us that we are all implicitly biased. This critical race theory should be taught as part of a program of encouraging redistribution of jobs and contracts in the federal government. It's an indoctrination program, 100%. And I've already demonstrated to you that I, or discussed with you, I guess, how I have studied Excuse me, studied. I have studied, but that's a separate point. How I went onto the Harvard University website, took their implicit bias test, and was found to be biased in favor, slightly as it were, of African Americans. Implicit bias training under critical race theory doesn't account for that, to be clear. It's not that we're all slightly biased one way or the other, because that would wash out in the end, wouldn't it? No, 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 no. The claim of critical race theory is that we're overwhelmingly biased against, amongst others, African-Americans. Well, I took the test and it said exactly the opposite. It's their test, allegedly an unbreakable test, and I took it. And I took it twice, and it showed both times that I was, as such, uh, favoring albeit marginally African-Americans. What do you think of that? But uh, we as conservatives, of course, are used to the opposite. We are uh, accused to the false claims of anti-black racism, anti-minority racism, anti-women sexism. And the list goes on and on and on, to be clear. We're just using one example. But it's so telling how in this letter, these four or five deans, I don't remember, but we'll find out in a moment, talk about the use of critical race theory for redistributing, quote, who gets a job or who receives a federal contract. That's what it's about, folks. Show me the money. That's what it is about. Let's look at who signed this letter. Erwin Shemarinsky, who I know, by the way, he's a nice guy. 
White guy. White male. David Fagerman. Don't know him. I believe he's a white male. Kevin Johnson. Don't know him. I believe he's a white male. I'll try to look him up during the break. Jennifer Manukin. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Jennifer Manukin. Uh, female. White. Song Richardson. Female minority. I believe Asian. I don't see a lot of African-American representation in this group. Do you? Do you? Wait. So I've got a bunch of non-African-American, mostly white men telling me that we need to be redistributing jobs uh, towards, amongst others, African-Americans? Here's a crazy idea. Hold on. Let me think about this. Why don't we redistribute your jobs to African-Americans? If you stand behind so strongly the notion that we need to be redistributing jobs towards African-Americans, why haven't you given up your job? Why don't you volunteer away your job to an African-American? Hmm? It's critical race theory. It's not even critical gender theory. There is such a thing, by the way. That's separate. They, they relate to each other, no doubt. I, don't, uh, I think it's either one or zero African-Americans in that group of five. If you are so convinced that African-Americans need to be more represented in jobs, and you're a bunch of non-African-Americans, why are you not giving up your job? But you see, here's the thing. These leftists talk about what other people can do. These leftists talk about how other people have to trade away their um, uh, entitlement, shall we say? And I've just looked up Kevin Johnson. That's the dean of one of these schools that I mentioned. And by appearance, it, it seems he's not African-American. I can't guarantee you, right? But by appearance, it doesn't seem that he is African-American. So here's the thing. We've got five deans from all of the University of California law schools, none of whom are African-American, saying we should be redistributing jobs based on critical race theory, meaning taking into account race, the most critical of them to critical race theory being African-American. And none of the deans of those law schools are African-American. And none of those deans, apparently, has offered to step down from their positions of authority, perhaps put into place by implicit bias, according to them, to offer their jobs to an African-American. That is, of course, the hypocrisy of the left. We've seen this in neo-Marxism, and we saw it in Marxism. Right. Marxism was about class based warfare. And they said, well, we all need to be equal of class. And yet all of those in control of of communist regimes were rich. They were made rich by being in control of those communist regimes because they claimed a greater portion of entitlement. Oh, well, you see, it doesn't apply to me. You heard Bill de blah, 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 making that claim when 
he was telling New Yorkers not to be traveling around and going to the gym. And he traveled from one borough, one county, essentially, all the way to another county to go to his original gym. Imagine traveling, say, from Little Rock to Conway to go to your gym because you grew up in Conway. I have no problem if you want to do that. But not while you're claiming people shouldn't be traveling and everything should be shut down. But he did it. You know what he 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 was so embedded in this neo-Marxist philosophy. He said, well, but you see, I'm in control. I'm in charge. I need to lead the people. This is the problem with autocrats. They don't understand that when they're elected, they're elected to serve the people, serve the people, not lead the people. That's the inherent difference between an autocrat and a good democratic small-D, elected public official. The Democratic elected public official, democratically elected, wants to serve you, wants to work for you, not dictate to you. That's the inherent difference. But as the old saying goes, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That doesn't mean we don't create systems of power. That means we create systems of checks and balances on power. One example of that check and balance is when we have the legislature working with the executive on important issues. And so during this time of, according to the executive, ongoing emergency, the legislature should be called into session so that they can work on addressing the emergency. Here's a little secret, folks. A lot of people, including me, respect this governor. And I think the legislature would overwhelmingly endorse what the governor's doing. Maybe some tweaks. But let's be open to the possibility of those tweaks. Let's be open to improving the process by having more voices heard. But the less democratic a process that we see in any context, the more opportunity we have for authoritarianism. It doesn't mean you get it immediately, but eventually you do. And so here we have five deans of, the, of all of the University of California law schools, all leftist deans, all embodying and espousing the virtues of the use of race in hiring. They said so. I read you the line. And there's not one African-American, it seems, in any of those positions. So I challenge them. Give up your position if if it's so important. But that's not what they want to do. They want the next person to give up his or her position because that's costless. It's about externalizing the cost of their political agendas onto somebody else. So you folks, you've got to pay the price when you apply for a job. You likely are not applying to be the dean of a California law school. But when you apply for a job and you're told, oh, I'm sorry, you're not the right race. If you happen not to be the right race, that's okay for them because they got their job. But if you don't have your job, hey, 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 it's for the good of society. Hey, what about you guys? No, 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 no. Don't pay attention to that. What you do is for the good of society. We're so smart, a la Bill de Blasio. We're so important, a la Bill de Blasio. We're so critical, 
pun intended, relative to critical race theory, that we shouldn't be accounted for in this tallying of critical race theory. Why is it that these, what is it, four or five deans, excuse me, of the University of California law schools are so willing to give up somebody else's child based on their false claims of pervasive implicit bias, but they're not willing to give up their own jobs. This is the crux of the hypocrisy of the left and the hypocrisy of neo-Marxism. The neo-Marxism that is embodied currently by the Democratic Party, embodied in our systems of higher education. As I said earlier, I have no problem that schools teach critical race theory. My problem is they don't come close to balancing that out by teaching more conservative ideologies. That's the problem. There is no balance here. I saw a clip of some grade school being taught online during the pandemic, and the teacher is telling these grade school students essentially how virtuous it will be for Kamala Harris to not only be the vice president, but based on Joe Biden's age, this is a Democrat talking, likely the president, because Joe Biden won't be able to finish out his term. They're counting them off, counting them out rather, already. So to say that Joe Biden is a stalking horse, according to these people on the left, it seems to be readily admitted. Folks, I will repeat it again. I think I said it in this morning's show. I borrowed a term, a a, a phrase from the Chief Justice of the United States. The only way to stop discrimination is to stop discriminating. And that means to stop discriminating against all groups. So you don't decrease discrimination by shifting discrimination. I've told you that a, a friend and colleague of mine often says, well, it took 400 years or we've had 400 years of discrimination or something along those lines, whatever the numbers are, somewhere between 150 years or to 400, let's say, years of discrimination, it should take as long to stop. No, it shouldn't. It takes 30 years to clog your arteries. It takes one hour to unclog them. It takes uh, years to develop cancer. Hopefully, when you cut it out, if you get all of it, if it hasn't spread, it takes a few hours to get rid of it. Robert, let's wrap wrap this up in the next segment, our final segment of the Dave Ellswick show for the 6 p.m. hour. We'll be right back after this commercial break on 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick show. I am Robert Simon filling in for Dave. I will be filling in for Dave all week and next Monday. Please tune in if you can. As you know, We are talking to you now during the 6 o'clock hour. The Dave Ellswick Show appears on 101.1 FM, The Answer, of course, radio, as well as on the app uh, from 6 to 8 a.m. and then 6 to 7 p.m. And I will be covering both spots for all week and Monday. Please try to tune in. 
And also, if you have an opportunity and you're on the Twitter post, the Twitter gram, and you would like to follow me, you can follow me at, excuse me, at, at Rob Steinbuck, R-O-B-S-T-E-I-N-B-U-C-H. And you can join my 14 or so listeners now. It's our last segment for the evening on this Monday. I hope you have had a good day so far and your evening is turning out well. We are talking, as we always do, about topics of the day. We had been talking about how the left has borrowed such race-based neo-Marxist philosophy that you have a bunch of non-African-American deans in the UC, University of California, law school system, claiming that race-based hiring should be increased. Yeah. And in particular, using the critical race theory philosophy, which focuses not exclusively, but significantly on African-Americans, And yet none of these deans are African-American. It's the hypocrisy of the left. And it's the hypocrisy of what we see going on with the riots, with with all the bad behavior, when the left is unwilling to call it out. Let's give credit where credit's due. Joe Biden just recently called it out. He absolutely did. I don't know if you think he did in an entirely ideal way. Okay, we can talk that on the margins. What I can tell you is he did call it out three months late. Three months late. Why? Only because he saw in the polls that President Trump was starting to go up based on his commitment to law and order. And so Joe Biden realized, hey, we may not win this election unless we start talking about law and order. So he says, oh, well, you shouldn't have any violence. Okay, good. That's a good statement. Joe Biden deserves credit for that. Joe Biden also needs to be questioned why he hasn't said anything for the last three months about it. Did you just realize it, Joe? Now, that is a possibility due to a combination of factors. One, being locked in his basement. And two, uh, being what I call oatmeal Joe. Not fully aware of what reality is any longer. I think one can that Joe Biden has not demonstrated clearly some mental deficit at this point. You don't need to be an expert to perceive that. And in fact, close friends of mine who are Democrats, who are voting, no doubt, as they expressly claim for Joe Biden, say, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, we we see the mental decline. For sure, we see the mental decline. So that's what's remarkable about this is that Anybody who wants to be honest about Joe Biden can't deny that there is a mental decline. Now, you might say, I'll take the mental decline because I still prefer it. Fair enough. But dishonest about it. And too many on the left are being dishonest about it because they are aptly concerned that certain voters will not vote for Joe Biden for that reason. Because of not a good idea, they believe, I believe, to vote for someone who's already in a state of mental decline. That's a bad idea. Now, my friends don't think so, but a lot of people do, including me. If he's in this apparent, obvious 
state of decline, that he's going to be out of his position one way or another, meaning de facto, uh, as a matter of fact, other people will take over his responsibilities or de jure, as a matter of law, he will be declared uh, incapable of continuing in this position. Either way, the far more obvious leftists will take over. I mean that directly through Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris uh, uh, taking over, but also all of those other people surrounding him, making many of the decisions on his behalf and scripting him in even seemingly or at least presented as unscripted events. So I realize that the audience is not voting for Joe Biden. I realize that the state of Arkansas is not voting for Joe Biden. But if you know someone in another state who in the state that is potentially a swing state, call them up, convince them to vote for Donald Trump. You know, when I, I was taking care of my mother uh, who has since, as you likely recall, if you have listened to me, has died from cancer. And I was in New York at the time, and I was hoping to fly back to vote in the election. And then, as it turned out, my mother was between two surgeries, and she was going through chemo, and the chemo wasn't going very well. And I was unable to fly back, and I had not made arrangements uh, to vote absentee. Now, I knew that Donald Trump was going to win Arkansas, so I wasn't terribly concerned about it. But I would have liked to have been able to vote. These things happen. I don't regret not leaving my mother. Uh, if I had the benefit of hindsight, I would have called for an absentee ballot. But by the time I realized I wasn't voting, it was too late for me to get an absentee ballot. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we will talk to you tomorrow morning on the Dave Ellswick Show. Don't miss Robert Steinbach. He is filling in for Dave Ellswick all this week since Dave is on vacation. We are out of here for today. Again, we'll see you tomorrow morning on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer.